1: Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And
0: April Callahan. So Cass, first thing, the very first thing that comes to your mind when I ask
1: you this question, oldest fashion brand in the US, go. Hmm, That's actually a very good question and makes me wonder. I mean, I guess if I would have to guess off the top of my head, I would say something like Levi Strauss close, but not quite. It's actually Brooks Brothers. Hmm. And
0: I think that we have may have like very, very briefly mentioned this on the show in the past, but Brooks Brothers is actually the oldest continuously operating fashion brand in the United States and actually has more than 200 years of company history behind it. So... There's bound to be maybe a couple skeletons in the closet um, when your brand has been around that long. And today we're actually joined by Dr. Jonathan Michael Square to discuss some of his really intriguing object-based research that hits at this intersection of fashion history and the history of slavery within
1: the United States. Dr. Square is a scholar of fashion and visual culture of the African diaspora at Harvard University, where his work examines the ways, quote, dress and adornment served as a form of radical self-determination. When enslaved peoples did not have direct access to revolutionary, quote unquote, texts, they often used textiles, end quote. And we cannot wait to hear more. Dr. Square, welcome to Dressed. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Square. Welcome to Dressed.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited about the conversation.
0: Yeah, me too. And what that conversation is really kind of going to center on today is part, just part of your research for a book that you're working on currently. Um, but before we get to that, I'd like to ask you first how you came to the field of fashion studies, because this is something that I've started recently asking all of our guests. We actually get a lot of questions from people about, like, how do you become a, a fashion historian or, or a fashion scholar? And I think it's really, really interesting and compelling to hear about all of the various different paths of study that kind of lead some of us to what we do.
2: Well, April, I was actually born a fashion scholar. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. (laughs) But in all seriousness, I've nurtured a lifelong interest in creative expression. My parents went to art school and I grew up around their art. Mm -hmm. And so anyone who's known me for a long time will tell you that art and fashion have always been passions of mine. There was a moment where I like dabbled with being a fashion blogger. Do you remember fashion bloggers?
0: Oh, yeah. Back in the day. (laughs) Before influencers, pre-influencers.
2: Exactly. Like, if you scroll deep into my, like, IG, you'll see me trying to be a fashion blogger. Like, like I cringe <laughs> at, at those posts. <laughs> but I won't delete them because I have, like, this historian's archiving in posts. Like, you could just, like, jump into your head from that moment. But in any case, I didn't really start to identify as a fashion scholar until, like, the tail end of my doctoral studies. I did a PhD in history at NYU. And while I was doing a PhD, I created a digital humanities project called Fashioning Self and Slavery and Freedom. I meant it to be like an online resource for people who are interested in the, the relationship between fashion, the fashion industry and slavery. And also being from Louisiana, I've always been interested in the history of slavery and my own history as an ascendant of enslaved peoples. So this my current research and also this digital humanities project sort of marries those two interests. So, But I would say that, you know, it's through that project, I became less a fashion consumer or lover of fashion, and I became a real fashion scholar. I often say that I fashioned myself Mm -hmm. into a fashion scholar.
0: And we will definitely, at the end, when I um, ask you how people can find you, you can tell people and direct people to that resource, which is still online. You know, you were talking about being a historian, and um, you have remarked to me in the past that archival research is incredibly important to you and that you, I'm quoting you, both fetishize and theorize the archive. In what way does that inform your research, particularly the research that you're doing right now?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think fashion designers, well, I don't think I know fashion designers use textiles. And I, as a historian, I use texts. And in a lot of ways, I think it's the same intellectual work. We're Mm -hmm. just using different mediums. My research is based in part on object analysis. So this chapter that we're going to describe, I'm I'm using two Brooks Brothers coats that were worn by enslaved valets as a point of departure. But really the grist of the research lies in the analysis of archival documentation. Mm -hmm. And as historians, we're taught to think very critically about the archive as an epistemological space So it's not just a repository of dusty old documents. It's a place where knowledge is created. And it's also a place where some narratives are privileged and other narratives are excluded or sidelined. And it all comes down to power. Of course. You know, the word archive comes from a word in ancient Greek, which I will not bother to butcher (laughs) (laughs) on your podcast. (laughs) But the word means to be first or to rule. So a lot of words that convey power and control, whether it's monarch or hierarchy or anarchy, sort of derive from the same word. So archives are about power. And the archive and those who control it have the power to shape a narrative or to control the way history is told, whether it's a historical figure or a nation. And in my particular case, it's a for-profit company. And Brooks Brothers in particular, um, it's... Archive is run by a DC-based marketing firm and corporate archive known as the History Factory. Um, it was founded in 1979 and the History Factory helps construct corporate identities and build brand narratives. And so you can think about the survival of Brooks Brothers archive as being indebted To this firm. Mm -hmm. One of the co founders of the History Factory um, actually reached out to Brooks Brothers in the late 70s, early 80s, when the company was on the brink of bankruptcy. You know, people weren't really buying suits anymore, and they really had to like restructure. And this firm basically ran their archive at its own expense because they they believed that it was important um, for the history of the company. Now I find myself getting lost in the whole, like the weeds of the research. When the company was bought by um, Claudio Del Vecchio, um, who's also a Brooks Brothers enthusiast, he paid for the the, the backout expenses. And the history company actually still advises Brooks Brothers. They often tell them to focus on innovation and non-conformity. Um, and of course, their brand strategy sort of occludes any connection to slavery, but you can think about the survival of Brooks Brothers as being due to like the generosity or the largest of these like two wealthy white men who have emotional connections to the brand.
0: Interesting. And and we have, we have mentioned before on the show that Brooks Brothers is one, if not the oldest continuously operating fashion brand in the U.S., Could you give us a little bit of background on the company before we turn our attention to the two particular objects that kind of sparked your query into the company?
2: Absolutely. I mean, you guys are absolutely right. Brooks Brothers is the oldest American clothing brand. It was founded by a grocer named Henry Sands Brooks. And... You know, given his experience in retail, he opened this men's clothing emporium in lower Manhattan on April 7, 1818. The original store was on the corner of Catherine and Cherry Street, a neighborhood that is referred to as the two bridges because it's nestled between the Brooklyn and Manhattan Bridge. Mm-hmm. In the early 19th century, it was sort of a bustling commercial slash reg- residential district with the view of the East River. And funny enough, Brooks Brothers actually shared this neighborhood with Lord & Taylor, mm-hmm. which was founded about six years later. But I mean, the store's waterfront location is really important because it was conducive to international and domestic trade. It was only two blocks away from the wharves. And that, I think that's crucial to understanding the company's connection to slavery. Mm-hmm. But throughout the 19th century, it was run by the Brooks family. And that's that's where the name comes from, the Brooks Brothers, like, after Henry Sands Brooks died, he, it went to his, his son's, the Brooks brothers. Um, and it, it stayed into the in the family until 1946. And after 1946, it was sold a number of times. And now it's owned by um, Claudio Del Vecchio, who's an Italian magnate. Claudio Del Vecchio's family owns Luxottica, mm-hmm. which is the, the eyewear conglomerate. Um, like Luxottica, they make lens crafters, yeah, Sunglass hood.
0: We're actually going to do um, an episode coming up shortly on the history of sunglasses, and it's
2: um. and it's going to be
0: less about object based and more like theory based. Um, and it's going to be really interesting, and and you'll learn more about sunglasses when we get to that episode, uh, listeners. But um, basically, there's like two really main companies that make almost all of the sunglasses and eyewear that we see around the world, right?
2: It's kind of astounding. Yeah. Yeah, like, they they have a real lack on the market. And it wasn't until, like, companies like Warby Parker, that they sort of, like, started to break up that conglomerate. But, like, whether it's Ray-Ban or Oakley, Versace, Miu Miu, Tory Burch, they're all made by Mm Sadika. So, I mean, this family has a lot of money.
0: Yeah. Of objects, I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about the two coats that you referenced earlier that were worn by enslaved men. How did you come across these and can you describe them for us?
2: I first came across it in a footnote in a book by a historian named Philip Foner. And he mentions in passing that Brooks Brothers had a connection to slavery. And I just sort of stored it in the back of my mind. But then I came across two coats that were in the permanent collection of the Historic New Orleans collection. And those two references, the two coats in Historic New Orleans collection and the footnote in the, the book by Philip Foner was sort of the jumping off point for this chapter, for this research. The coats are still in really great condition. Um, you can still see the Brooks Brothers logo in one of the coat. Um, not the local so much, but the label mm-hmm. on the inside of the coat. And it's sort of, one is what we call a great coat, sort of a long knee length coat with buttons all along the front. The other one is a cutaway coat. So instead of going all the way down to the knee, the tail on the back of the coat goes all the way down to the knee, but the front is sort of short with buttons going along the top.
0: Yeah, and so a great coat um, was usually worn as like outerwear, right? And so the tail coat was probably... Some sort of form of livery, I would guess. More of indoor wear, probably.
2: Exactly. Yeah, these were uniforms for enslaved valets. So the purchaser of the coat was a man named William Newton Mercer. William Newton Mercer was extraordinarily wealthy. He was born in Maryland, was educated at the University of Pennsylvania, served in the Army he opened up a private practice in Natchez because he was stationed in Natchez. And he married into a planter family. And shortly after marrying into this family, his father-in-law died. And a few years later, his wife died. And he inherited most of this family's wealth, which included four plantations. So Mercer was kind of in like the top 1% of slave owning planters in the South. So he had a lot of disposable Mm -hmm. income.
0: How many enslaved persons did he have working for him, or, or or do we even know?
2: We know. There's a lot of documentation of it. And he was actually a very fastidious record keeper. so There are, actually, there are actual, actually several lists of his enslaved peoples, and there's also census schedules of his enslaved peoples. The highest number I've seen is over 500.
0: Wow. So, you know, you, you mentioned that Brooks Brothers is in New York, and Mercer is in Mississippi, right?
2: Mississippi and New Orleans.
0: Yeah. Um, This is very much a story about place in addition to like a biographical narrative. You just established New York City as the home of Brooks Brothers, but now we're talking about the American South. So how do these two places intersect in terms of these two coats, these two objects?
2: That's an important connection that you made because people often associate the institution of slavery with the American South. And rightly so, like most slave holding states were in the South. And of course there was slave slavery in the Northeast, but of course there was gradual emancipation that started in the early 19th century. So we associate slavery more so with the American South than with the Northeast. But also we have to remember that there were a number of industries that benefited from slavery. Even if slavery had been abolished in New York or Massachusetts, or what have you, um, they were still benefiting from the economy that was based in part on slave labor. So as you said, Brooks Brothers was founded in New York, and New York plays a really important part in my research. I mean, as I just described, like I talk a lot about the early retail landscape of Manhattan. And also William Newton Mercer, the man who purchased the coats for his enslaved valets, he spent part of his life in New York. So he was a unionist. And he spent part of the Civil War in New York. In fact, he was a member of the Union Club, which is the oldest private men's club in New York. It actually still exists. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a club for men only. Um, it's on 69th Street. But he, he was that embedded in the city that he was part of, part of this club. And he might have even bought the Brooks Brothers Coats on one of his trips to New
0: York. So he would have maybe had their measurements and had them made to measure for these two particular individuals. And were they worn by two individuals or do we know who wore them?
2: That's a really great point um, question that you're bringing up because Brooks Brothers was actually one of the first firms to innovate ready-made clothing. And fashion historians often talk about it in like sort of like laudatory terms. But actually, they innovated the ready-made clothing industry for soldiers, for low-wage workers, for enslaved peoples, because those folks couldn't afford the frills of, like, bespoke custom suiting. So he probably didn't have the measurements. He probably just eyeballed the coats and been like, this should fit such and such person. Mm -hmm. And to answer the second part of your question, we don't know exactly who wore the coats. Okay, that's one thing I'm trying to figure out in my research. Um, I've been able to identify two formerly enslaved men who lived in his household who were identified in the 1870 census. So I don't know if those were the actual two men who wore the coats or was it someone else? Because the coats were probably purchased earlier, probably between 1855 and 1865.
0: Uh, and and you you write in, um, in some of your work on this that fashion was really embedded, and I'm quoting you here, um, into the, quote, system, even as the institution of slavery was disintegrating. So I'm hoping that you can elaborate on that, both in terms of how fashion was employed by slave merchants selling, as you say, quote, enslaved chattel, and also after the fact by plantation and slave owners like Mercer in establishing this sort of hierarchy within their own households or their own properties? Because that's kind of at the core of like what we're getting at with these jackets, right?
2: Absolutely. And, you know, one thing I really appreciate about your question is that you're stressing the word fashion. I know in day-to-day language, we tend to use dress and fashion interchangeably, um, but it's an important distinction for scholars. And like these Brooks Brothers clothes that I'm describing weren't utilitarian workday garments which is what i would associate with the word dress Mm -hmm. they were more fashion items like they weren't bought, bought out of necessity they were bought out of a desire for ostentatious display but you're absolutely right like you know i feel like in the popular imagination or like in the memory of slavery when we think about the slave market we think about people sort of in ragged clothing or half dress but in reality Documents have shown, and also images of the slave market have shown, that people were actually dressed up for the slave market. They were dressed in clothing that was much better than sort of utilitarian day to day dress. It was sort of costuming for the theater of the slave market. Um, and for instance, Solomon Northrop, who's um, the author of 12 Years a Slave, describes the costuming of enslaved peoples, and they, they were given clothing, special clothing, for the slave market. They were sort of dressed up. For the slave market and as you brought up in the second part of your question there was other ways in which the the fashion system sort of became embedded in like the functioning of slave societies because productive slaves or domestic slaves or favorite slaves were often given finer garments one to sort of draw a distinction to sort of highlight the hierarchy between them and enslaved peoples with a lower status within the plantation or within the slave society. So for example, Sally Hemings, who was Thomas Jefferson's longtime concubine, didn't actually receive the best clothing at Monticello. It was actually Jupiter, who was Thomas Jefferson's longtime valet, who received the best fabrics. That's just an example in which hierarchies are established on plantations or in slave societies, and it's often based on the ways in which fashion is doled out.
0: Right. You know, and and coming back to Brooks Brothers specifically here, um, I bet many of our listeners are going to be surprised to learn about what you just mentioned a few moments ago is that Brooks Brothers was actually commissioned to produce uniforms for Union soldiers during the Civil War. Would you tell us a little bit? more about that. And, and also, if you wanted to ex- and draw that connection to household livery that was worn by many enslaved and even a little bit later, if, if I'm correct, newly freed persons who remained in domestic service in the American South.
2: Yeah, I, I think it's a history that people don't often associate with Brooks Brothers. You know, we associate Brooks Brothers with sort of all-American, preppy, collegiate style Mm-hmm. But the earliest history of the, the company, it was actually in, it was sort of like a one-stop shop for menswear. If you wanted a custom suit, you can go there and get like a fine custom suit. You'd pick out like like fine wool for a custom suit. But if you also wanted ready-made garments, they also pro- provided that too. And those ready-made garments were more so for for soldiers, for domestics for low-wage laborers who couldn't afford to have custom-made clothing. So Brooks Brothers received a contract to produce uniforms for the Union Army. It turned out that the uniforms weren't the best quality and that they actually had to be remade by another company.
0: Oh, no. Early to ready wear, it didn't always work.
2: (laughs) But the, they got the contract actually through a New York City mayor named George Opdyke, who was actually a clothing manufacturer himself. And he, he had a clothing company that made clothing for enslaved peoples in New York on Hudson Street. And I think it's through this connection that Brooks Brothers got the contract for mm. the Union Army uniforms um, through this connection with George Opdyke because he he was looking out for his own like his business associates.
0: Yeah. So that connection between, let's say, military uniforms and also domestic household staff uniforms, it's very close.
2: It's very close. And, you know, I feel like it's something that Brooks Brothers has sidelined in its history. But you often do see catalogs from the late 19th century for liveries, Brooks Brothers liveries. That was a separate catalog from like their their fine suiting Um, So it's sort of, it's the origins of ready-made garments, which lies in like cheap clothing, cheap menswear for soldiers, for laborers, for domestics, for enslaved peoples.
0: Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens.
1: And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android.
0: Like military uniforms often have a lot of emblems or symbols embedded into them, these particular coats that you examined also did. Would you tell us a little bit about the buttons that are featured on these coats, and and how does that relate to some of the other forms of material culture that have been found within the Mercer household?
2: Yeah, that's really interesting. The buttons have little falcons on them, so. The Mercer crest has falcons on it. So he wanted to sort of emblazon his enslaved peoples with signs of his family's wealth. So he had custom buttons um, for these jackets. and But you can see other falcons throughout the limiteria culture from the Mercer household. So, for example, there's a silver tray and it has a falcon and an M on it. So this and this actually wasn't that uncommon in like the wealthier households in um antebellum US. Mm-hmm. They would often have symbols that represented the family on the buttons for their domestics and enslaved peoples. It's not unusual to see symbols or crests um from a family throughout a household, whether it's on tie backs for curtains or for different symbols around households. And they often, enslaved peoples, were treated like luxury items, just like an ashtray or a handkerchief.
0: Yeah. And uh, Dr. Monica L. Miller joined us last season on Dressed, and she talked about that specifically. So you can go back to that episode if you want to learn more about that. Dr. Square, Brooks Brothers has been around for over 200 years at this point. How can we account for the longevity of the company? And I'm curious um, as to what Brooks Brothers' response has been to your research.
2: Well, I think Brooks Brothers has survived in part due to glacial shifts in menswear mm-hmm. that protected from the vagaries of a mercurial fashion industry. You know, with women's wear trends shift every few years, even in the 19th century. And that's less the case with menswear. So people shop at Brooks Brothers because it's fashioned itself into an American institution. And, you know, my father shopped there. My grandfather shopped there. It's really solidified itself as like a go-to purveyor of like respectable suiting and preppy menswear. In the process, they completely sidestep any reference to Manufacturing clothing for, you know, enslaved peoples or low wage laborers, and they sort of sanitize their history. But I think it's doing part to to its menswear. Of course, it's it's had troubles in the past, like like I mentioned, like the '70s and '80s was a really hard time for Brooks Brothers. And there's recently a New York Times article about Brooks Brothers, and it's going through another rough patch right now. But I think it's been able to sort of stick around because trends in menswear are, are, until recently at least, were very Still changing. Mm-hmm. So, throughout his storied history, Brooks Brothers has always boasted an al- illustrious clientele. For example, Abraham Lincoln famously wore a Brooks Brothers frock coat the night that he was shot by John Wilkes Booth. And Franklin Roosevelt wore a Brooks Brothers collared wool cape um at the Yalta Conference in 1945. And John F. Kennedy was actually wearing a Brooks Brothers button-down shirt when he was assassinated in Dallas. And one image that I really like to show when I present this work to my students is a, a image of Barack Obama and President Trump um, during the 2017 presidential election, and they're wearing identical Brooks Brothers coats.
0: Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm going to guess I already know who wore it better, just saying. <laughs>
2: So Brooks Brothers actually dressed 40 out of 45 American presidents. Can you guess the five presidents who weren't outfitted by Brooks Brothers?
0: Oh, I'm not even going to (laughs) take a stab at that. But I bet you're going to tell us.
2: Yes. Uh, So Brooks Brothers was founded in 1818. So the first three presidents weren't able to be um, outfitted by Brooks Brothers. But funny enough, it was Jimmy Carter.
0: Hmm.
2: Jimmy Carter apparently was very thrifty and preferred not to have any new suits when he became the American president. So he wasn't outfitted by Brooks Brothers. And it was also Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan, of course, was an actor. He lived in California before he became the president. And he had a whole, he had tailors and people that he worked with in California that he preferred to continue working with. So yeah, Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan
0: The storied history of Brooks Brothers deepens even further.
2: (laughs) This is going back to the conversation that we were having about archiving. Hmm. But the company selectively draws from its archive and its story history to maintain its loyal customers and to attract new ones. Brooks Brothers regularly references its archive in advertising, marketing, and even in, in the design of its garments. For this reason, the History Factory, and by extension, Brooks Brothers cautiously vets who is granted access to the archive, particularly as it is consciously marketed as a quote, heritage brand. Mm-hmm. In an effort to not hurt its bottom line, the company has been silent about a heritage that's steeped in American slavery. And they've carefully crafted a brand narrative that sidesteps any unsavory details about its history and archive.
0: Yeah, interesting.
2: So I haven't had access to the archive. I've tried multiple times <laughs> and they will not grant me access. Yeah.
0: Do they respond to you or are they just like, no, thank you. We're not taking researchers right now.
2: No response. No response. You know, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I hope to, I mean, I think, you know, I don't think they're going about this the smartest way. I think they should control a narrative instead of me, scrappy fashion scholar doing this research. They should, do the research and expose this history and control the narrative Uh, because they I mean it's ultimately their company and their brand and their their profits that'll be hurt so I mean there have been a lot of institutions and companies that have sort of taken that approach like Volkswagen
0: we're gonna get ahead of this kind of type
2: exactly exactly yeah or even like a lot of universities who've ha- who have a connection to slavery they're, like we're they're gonna like start an initiative to support like minorities who are interested in like higher education like we're going to control the narrative but brooks butters is like just like swept it under the rug and i think it's just the fashion industry the fashion in- industry is unstable all it takes is like one gaffe one slip up
0: <laughs> and we've seen many recently <laughs>
2: we've seen many. So I think their tactic is just to ignore this history, but you know, I don't know. I don't think it's the smartest move.
0: Yeah. Agreed. Um, I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit more about um, some of your other work, perhaps your fashioning the self project. And what else can people expect to read about when your book is released?
2: So this is actually just one chapter of a book of several chapters. So there's one chapter on head wraps worn by free and enslaved women in New Orleans. And there will be another chapter on W.E.D. Du Bois and mm-hmm. his self-fashioning. Um, so this is just one slither of a larger project. Each chapter, I hope, will fit together like puzzle pieces, mm-hmm. and like be in dialogue with each other. But yeah, I mean, the book project is just part of my larger work on fashion and slavery. As you've mentioned, I'm very active on social media. I'm a big proponent of digital humanities um, as a way to democratize higher education and to radicalize pedagogical practices. Um, so feel free to follow me on Instagram or Facebook at Fashioning the Self on Instagram and on Facebook, Fashioning the Self and Slavery and Freedom. I'm also on Twitter, Unsown Histories. And I, I recently just launched a YouTube so you get to see my my face in person.
0: Yay. <laughs> one quick question before perhaps we wrap up today i besides um, your own work do you have any other recommendations for any of our listeners who might want to learn more about the intersection of dress race and social justice
2: absolutely well first i would direct your listeners to the conversation that you had with monica miller monica miller is an amazing scholar and she's you know, someone I looked, look up to in terms of, like, research on fashion and slavery. She's also just a really nice person.
0: Yes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'd Also, direct your listeners to Kimberly Jenkins' Fashion and Race Database.
0: Yeah. Hey, Kim.
2: Hey, Kim. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really important resource. It's free and open to the public. Um, so definitely check it out and, and follow the database on Instagram. And I would also direct your listeners to the work of Tanisha C. Ford. Anything written by Tiffany Gill, anything written by Eric Darnell Pritchard. I love the work of the Costume Institute of the African Diaspora, which is out of the London College of Fashion. I'm close friends with Chaney McKnight, who's a historical reenactor. And Darnell Jamal. Um, I have a friend named Serena Lee who has an Instagram account called the Georgian Diaspora. Anything written by Robin Gavon, who's amazing. And of course, um, Elizabeth Way, who's a curator at the museum at FIT.
0: We love Liz.
2: We love Liz. Hi, Liz. And also there's an influencer on Instagram whose work that I'm a fan of. Um, it's Pam Boy.
0: Oh, I don't know this.
2: P-A-M underscore boy.
0: Oh, I'm writing this down. <laughs> cool. I will, I will check that one out. Dr. Square, thank you so much for joining us. We really,
1: really, really appreciate
0: this.
2: Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk with you.
1: You too. Bye. Bye. Jonathan, thank you so much for being with us on the show today. What a fascinating conversation, April. And I found it really interesting what he had to say about Thomas Jefferson's favorite valet who received finer quality of clothing and textiles than Jefferson's long-term concubine and mother to six of his children, Sally Hemings. Needless to say, we are very much looking forward to Dr. Square's book when it comes out. And I think that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider the systems of power interwoven into your wardrobe next time you get dressed. We hope you will join us on Thursday for our mini-sode where we answer your listener questions and or keep you up to date on the latest goings-on in the realm of fashion studies. If you'd like to write to us with questions for a future fashion history mystery, you can do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can, of course, always DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast where we post images to accompany each week's episode.
0: Thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes the show possible each week. We will catch you on Thursday. Mm -hmm. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.